read this little story of a man named John Walker, 1800s. He's a chemist, and he was stirring some chemicals together and, and realized like, a bunch of, there was a bunch of glob of chemicals on the end of his stir stick. He tried to clean it off by scraping it on his hearth, and it caught on fire. And in that moment, he discovered matches, right? Like serendipitously. And, and that word, serendipity, I think is such a cool word. Um, it means like a lucky find or a happy accident, a fortunate coincidence, kind of all wrapped up together. Um, and it can refer to the act of stumbling upon something positive that you didn't expect or the aptitude for doing that. So just like you can have creativity, you can have serendipity as an attribute. Um, serendipity is largely regarded as the hardest word in English to translate into another language. Um, you need a lot of words in another language to express that one word in English. And sometimes you need different phrases in other languages to explain the different ways, you know, based on the context, the way it's used. And so I say all that because I want you to have a relatable example of an English word that you might know that's hard to translate into other languages before talking about a Hebrew word that's really hard to translate into English. So this word is used 250 times in the Old Testament. Half of those are in the Psalms. And it's, it went, you know, if something's repeated in the Bible, it means we're supposed to pay attention. It's probably important. And this word is likely the primary word used in the Old Testament to describe how God relates to his people and how, in response, we should relate to one another. Josh mentioned this a couple weeks ago. The word, the Hebrew word is hesed. You have to pronounce it. Uh, the ESV most often translated, translates it as steadfast love. NIV uses unfailing love. The old King James uses loving kindness. Uh, my favorite is the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And depending on the context, it's sometimes also translated mercy or uh, sometimes kindness, loyalty, favor. Like that's a lot of different ideas in English all wrapped up in one word in Hebrew. In Exodus 34, God describes himself using hesed twice. He says he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, hesed. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, has said for thousands. Other translations in Exodus 34 use the word uh, faithfulness, or mercy, goodness, love, all for Hesed. And all those descriptions are correct, but none is perfect. And in Psalm 136, every single verse has the line, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And it's a word way richer in meaning than serendipity. We need a lot of words to capture it. 
Right? But the important thing is not that you know the word hesed or, you know, like kind of nerd out about the language with me, but that you, what's vitally important is that you know God's hesed for you. Excuse me. It's always rough when, like, musical worship is, like, moving, and then I have to preach. I'm like, I'm already choked up. You know? <laughs> um, so the Bible is full of examples of steadfast love. And it comes up in a surprising way in the psalm that we're about to look at today. So Psalm 77 can be categorized as a lament. David, who is called a man after God's own heart, wrote most of the psalms. Most of the psalms can be categorized as a lament. So it seems like grief is close to the heart of God. I mean, after all, Jesus is described in Isaiah as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, summer in the Pacific Northwest, usually it's time for celebration. Right? We're outside, the sun is shining, we're happy, we're making the most of it. But tragedy and difficulty isn't seasonal. Right? So if you're going through something troubling right now, something very difficult right now, I pray that Psalm 77 brings you comfort and hope. And if you're not, I pray that it arms you for the difficulty to come. So Karen, come on up here. Poetry's never really been my thing, but in a college English class, I learned that one of the best things for understanding poetry is read it multiple times. And so that you don't have to listen to me twice, I asked Karen to read Psalm 77, and then I'll also read it out loud. And we're going to be reading a composite of the New Living and, um, and some other translations swapped in for different phrases. So feel free to just listen, close your eyes, read it on the screen, but let it sink in. Psalm 77. I cry out, O God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted towards heaven. But your soul refused to be my my soul refused to be comforted. I think of God, and I mean overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days, long since ended. When my nights were filled with joyful songs, I searched my soul and I pondered the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Has his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he held back his tender love because he was angry? And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. O oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God who works great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. 
By your strong arms, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along the road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. So I'm going to read that same passage as well. I, I really think that hearing it twice is good for us, and what God has to say is more important, more powerful than what I have to say. Psalm 77. I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God will listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long, I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul refused to be comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days, long since ended, when nights were filled with joyful songs, and I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious to me? Has he held back his tender love because he was angry? And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then, but then I recall all you've done, O oh Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds from long ago. They're constantly in my thoughts. I can't stop thinking about your mighty works. Oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God who works great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the Red Sea saw you, oh God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain, thunder rumbled in the sky, your arrows of lightning flashed, your thunder roared from the whirlwind, the lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. This is the word of the Lord.
this song, this song begins with the, the psalmist disoriented by his troubles and ends with him reoriented toward God. And we see here and in many psalms, the psalmist pay attention. That's, that's the first point. They don't ignore sadness. They don't just get over it. They don't get back to business immediately. They don't turn to substances that numb the emotional pain. They let the, uh, they pay attention to loss and allow it to kind of wash over them. I used to think maybe like many of you that grief was something to be avoided or at the very least something to like get through as quickly as possible. It's an obstacle to the rest of life. But David and the psalmist show us the more we like, rightly learn to grieve, the closer we become, we come to the heart of God. And then the more, um, excuse me, compassion we can offer to those around us. I believe there's no spiritual maturity without grief. But grief doesn't always produce spiritual maturity. I think the key is the psalmist take their, they consistently take their grief to God. They're not ashamed to question God in their agony. Like this psalm, the songwriter, like with dripping, you know, like question after question is dripping with raw, honest emotion. Has the Lord rejected me? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Has he held back his tender love because he was angry? I, I hope you were shocked that the psalmist wondered if God's hesed, his unfailing love, failed. The concept of God's steadfast love is like the centerpiece of the book of Psalms. We hear it over and over and over that it endures forever. And yet now the psalmist wonders, is that true? And his, though his soul refused to be comforted and he questions God's love, he does it in prayer. Right? All night long, with his hands lifted up, he's, he's longing for God's help. Um, when Kate and I pray for you guys, friends that we know are going through something hard, one of the things we very often pray is that, that you, our, our friends, would turn to the Father in response to trouble, and that that trouble wouldn't drive you away um, from the Father. Is we, we, do, we can come to Him, we don't have to hold back. We don't have to have it all together. He can take our fist-pounding anger and our, like, finger-waving accusations and our theologically incorrect questions and our groaning, like he can take it all. He's, he's not phased by any of that. And his presence is the best place to work all of this out. I think it's his presence is the difference between grief that leads to despair and grief that leads to spiritual maturity. It's in his presence we go from disoriented to reoriented. The, the first time I really read the psalm 
was on a flight to Dallas uh, for the funeral of my niece. Uh, little Bethany, my younger brother's and sister-in-law's first child died the day she was born. And they asked me to lead the memorial service as we struggled with some of these same raw questions, the most burning of which is, why? Why did our you know, tiny Bethany have to die? You know, after the psalmist asked all his like, raw emotional questions, he remembers God's mighty deeds, especially his redemption. He remembers, you, you demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeem the people. When the Red Sea saw you, O oh God, its waters looked and trembled, and you made a pathway no one knew was there. He remembers redemption. He remembers the exodus, God's rescue of his people from slavery. And to briefly recap that story, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and through wonders and plagues, God demonstrates his power over all the so-called gods of Egypt. Pharaoh finally relents. He gives Israel their freedom. They leave as a multitude. And just when you think the story's over, Pharaoh changes his mind, mounts up a giant army of imperial chariots, and chases down all the families of Israel. And, and they're caught. Their backs against the Red Sea, and here comes Egypt. And in that moment, God blocks the Egyptians with this giant pillar of cloud and lightning. And, and then he opens up a path of dry ground through what was just the sea a moment ago. Overnight, Israel passes through that path with walls of water on the, beside them. And then in the morning, the pillar of cloud moves, Egypt gives chase, and the walls of water come crashing down and Pharaoh's armies destroyed in the chaos. This story is the primary redemptive narrative for the Jewish people. It's, it's the story that defines them, that gives them their identity. The psalmist looks to that to see who God is and the lengths he will go to save his people. And that seems to change the posture of his, of his heart from disorientation and despair to reorientation toward God and worship. And then during a Passover festival celebrating this redemption from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, Jesus redeems us from slavery to sin and the kingdom of darkness through his death and resurrection. So the Exodus story is this powerful story of God's hesed love for us, but it points to the ultimate story of God's hesed love for us, the gospel of Jesus. But the, the, the suffering of Jesus on the cross doesn't directly answer the question of why God would allow horrible suffering. But, and this is the main thing I hope you take away from Psalm 77. 
God's mighty acts of redemption prove the reason for our suffering cannot be any of the reasons we fear most. Let me explain. When bad things happen, like the songwriter, we wonder, why would God allow this horrible suffering? Our redemption proves it's not because God doesn't love us. Right? The Bible said he demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus himself said, no greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And the most famous verse in the whole Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, the gospel of Jesus is the ultimate act of steadfast love and mercy and God's faithfulness to his covenant. The gospel is the pinnacle of hesed. So in our grief, we might wonder, like the psalmist, if God loves us, why did this happen? We might fear that we've gotten it all wrong. Maybe God doesn't love us. Maybe God doesn't exist. In that moment, like the songwriter, let's remember our redemption. Because God has more than proven his love for us through the gospel. So why would God allow horrible suffering? We may fear and wonder it, but it's not because God's not powerful enough. The psalmist remembers verse, in verse 18, the earth trembled and shook. That happened at the Red Sea, and it happened as Jesus hung on the cross. The Bible says, in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. And all things were made through him. Um, Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, uh, but took on the form of a servant. Also, also in Colossians 1, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's one of my favorite passages. It is this creator and sustainer of the universe who poured his infinity into a human body to hang on the cross for us in our place. Like, yeah, he's powerful enough. That's not the reason. Whatever trouble you're going through or will go through, I want you to hear this. It's not because God is punishing you. Verse 9 asks, has he held back his tender love because he was angry? A guy named Barry Cooper wrote that because God made a covenant with us to treat us with hesed love, God is, quote, utterly faithful to his own self-commitment. Our hope that God will love us to the uttermost and forever is not founded on our ability to keep his commands, but rather is founded on God's ability to keep being God. Scripture tells us there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that Jesus 
bore the iniquity of us all. And Jesus became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. You see, there's no wrath left for those who call Jesus Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. There's, there's not a drop of wrath left in the cup. Jesus drank it all. And in our anguish, we might fear that God is punishing us for something. But no, the cross proves he's not punishing us. Jesus took it all. That can't be the reason. We wonder sometimes going through horrible suffering, is it has God abandoned us? No, it's not because God abandoned us. That reason that we fear cannot be because of the gospel. Multiple books in the Old Testament and the New record God's promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said he was going to go ahead and prepare a place for his disciples and that it's better that he go so that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ can come dwell inside of his people. And I I think it's hard to overestimate the importance of the last words Jesus said to his disciples before his ascension. Having finished living a sinless life, dying a sacrificial death, and rising again triumphantly. After all that, the last thing he says to his disciples, the last sentence is, I am with you always even until the end of the age. Some brutal circumstance might lead us to fear that God's abandoned us. But remember our redemption. The good news of the gospel includes the fact that Jesus now lives in us by his spirit and will never, ever abandon us. And when we ask, why are we going through the suffering? It's not because bad things happen, just happen, or God made a mistake. Jesus' death on the cross was part of a cosmic plan from before creation. The Bible says in Romans, for those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That conformity to Jesus being made like Jesus is why in the previous verse, Paul says, that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, God will use anything to make us more like Jesus. All the circumstances around us, he will use to make us, to conform us into the image of Jesus. And you don't get to be like the person called the suffering servant and the man of sorrows without experiencing some grief. Um, and it's, it's like the promise of Jesus I'm the, usually the least excited about. In this world, you will have trouble. But what does he say? I've overcome. But take heart. I've overcome the world. On the verge of despair, we might question. This bad thing happened because God made a mistake. It wasn't paying attention. You know, is it somehow happening outside of God's knowledge and plan? And 
But the gospel reveals that redemption was God's plan before creation. And even things intended for evil, vile and terrible things, God can and somehow will redeem in the end. We may never know in this life why we experience some awful suffering, but the gospel proves the reason for our suffering cannot be any of those reasons that we fear the most. So as followers of Jesus, we have great hope, right? And biblical hope is not just wishful thinking. Um, I like how the ESV study Bible defines biblical hope as an absolute confidence in God's promises for the future based on his faithfulness in the past. So the resurrection of Jesus in the past is the foundation of our hope that we will be raised in the future in a resurrection where we get to experience a new heaven and a new earth in which there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. God's faithful love in Jesus, his faithful hesed in Jesus, is the basis of our hope that one day all our troubles will be over and we'll be with Jesus face to face in a great city where there's no need of the sun because the light of the glory of God illuminates and saturates everything and everyone. That's the final outcome of God's said love for us, the result of our redemption. So I want to invite you to respond to Psalm 77 and the gospel in a couple ways. First, as we sing, uh, let's sing like the psalmists. Let's pay attention to our losses. Let's honestly take our grief to the Father. And let's remember our redemption in Jesus. And as we sing this first song, when you're ready, let's go to the table remembering redemption through the bread and wine that represent Jesus's body and blood sacrifice for us.